0: I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Before we consider the word of the Lord together, let's go to him, our God, in prayer. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You tell us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two edged sword. It pierces to the deepest, innermost parts of our very souls and hearts. It convicts our consciences. It opens our eyes to see. It awakens new desires. It transforms the people of God, always has been and always will throughout all eternity. Your sheep hear your voice and they know it because it's their very lifeblood. It's their food. So as your people here today, may it be the word of God that penetrates our souls and changes us. May we bow low before it, honoring its supreme value. May we not, not a single one of us, discount the treasure that we hold before us. Use it now to convict, encourage, strengthen, build up, edify, and empower your people to live for you. In Christ we pray, amen. So yet again, we stand at the precipice of a new year. 2023 is just hours away from expiring, right? And what is on the minds of most people? Plans, goals, the newly rebranded 2024 version of me. Here it comes, right? Out with the old, in with the new. Some will convince themselves not a single gram of sugar will enter their bodies this year. Others will set goals to achieve new leadership positions in their places of work or take that long-awaited vacation that has been in the works for years. Spiritual goals will also be set, new Bible reading plans, new personal goals for witnessing or time with the Lord or better management of one's home or leadership of one's family. Now is the time of year when hopeful aspirations run high. Same goes for churches. We make plans, we approve budgets, we strategize, we try to solve problems that we encountered in the last year so we don't repeat them in the year to come. We cast vision for what may be possible down the road, and on and on. All good and appropriate things, right? But what if there was a way to go about all these initiatives, individually and personally, as well as collectively, corporately, as an assembly. What if there was a way to go about all these things in an evil manner? Evil? Is that true? too striking of a word? And I don't mean churches that, with leadership that would embezzle half the budget away or something like that, or prey upon the sheep in very obvious ways. I don't mean that. What I mean is, what if there was a certain kind of snare for individuals, churches, who are financially responsible, they've accomplished many wonderful things for the Lord, who have a proven track record of level-headed, wise decision-making, and who are appropriately forward-thinking and tracking in a healthy direction, by all accounts. If there was such a snare, what would it be? James tells us. The snare for such people is that insidious, poisonous, devilish belief that we can accomplish great things, even God-glorifying endeavors, apart from utter and complete dependence on a sovereign God. That's it. Now, before we zero in on this particular matter, let's remind ourselves in broad terms of the message of the book of James as a whole. Justin did a fantastic job of praying these themes just a few moments ago in his prayer of confession. But James the Just, as he is called, the brother of Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem church, writes about the nature of true religion, He is concerned that the church is filling up with Christians who are merely hearers of the word, but they're not doers. How is one to know the real thing from the fake thing? How is one to know if if what is true, genuine faith, religion, that is undefiled and keeps oneself unstained from the world, what does that look like? to a people who receive the truth but do not respond to it in daily life, who are drawn away of their own lusts, who show partiality, that special treatment of important people while dismissing the poor and those of little influence. Those same folks with duplicitous speech, praising God on the Lord's Day while biting and devouring the very same people Monday through Saturday. What is most needed is wisdom from above. Earthly wisdom will not do. Something otherworldly is necessary. Something received, not accomplished or earned. A good and perfect gift from the Father of lights who never changes, that's what's needed. This kind of wisdom is God's grace to produce a Christ-like wholeness in the Christian life. This is what James is after, the real deal. James has the wealthy of this world in mind more than a few times in his letter, hobnobbing with the who's who at church, the whole business in chapter 2 about giving better seats to the wealthy and the influential while the, 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 the poor have to sit in the back Somehow we reverse that in our culture. I feel like those are the roped-off seats, special you know, spots toward the back. And, you know, our brother Andrew is, is welcoming any takers, usually on a Sunday morning up front. Here we go, empty row here. Nevertheless, this sort of preferential treatment is antithetical to Christian relationships, In chapter 5, James will go hard after rich employers who are robbing the poor of their due wages. And he'll begin that section at the beginning of chapter 5 with the exact speech that he begins the end of chapter 4, where we find ourselves this morning. So at the end of chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, James seems to zero in on the manner with which some in the Christian community are approaching their future plans perhaps especially those with the luxury of wealth. So in verses, we can see a a sketch here of where we are headed. In verses 13 through 14, we see a depiction of self-reliance, along with James' rebuke of its foolishness. Follow along as I read verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So James seems to have in view his fellow businessmen within his own Christian community. And he makes it clear that these individuals know where they're going, they know what they want to accomplish, and they know how they are going to turn a profit. In today's terms, they've identified their target market, they've mastered their sales pitch, and they are fully confident that the money is basically in their bank accounts. It's a done deal. We are marching forward. This is happening. Now, to be clear, all of these actions are completely above board. In fact, doing honorable business that provides mutual benefit is a positive good. Jesus assumes this in a number of his parables. So we know Jesus or James here isn't advocating for some sort of socialist communal society in which wise financial strategies uh, to make an honest profit are outlawed. That's not his point. Furthermore, greediness or an insatiable lust for money isn't really precisely James' point either. It's something else. The point seems to be that these self-assured chaps evidently believe they can confidently forecast great wealth for themselves, but in reality, they cannot even forecast if they're going to live to see tomorrow. What they believe is going to happen is so far from reality. These businessmen were making a godless presumption that left out the most significant ingredient to the recipe of making plans. What is that? Dependency. Dependency on the Lord. As Benjamin Franklin famously said, and you can probably complete the sentence, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail, right? Franklin is, is, is no, no pillar of, of biblical Christianity, but he's simply articulating what the book of Proverbs says dozens of times. Planning for the future is wise and good. A lack of planning will reap a whirlwind of hardship. We know this, perhaps even experientially. But if the human heart is not constantly yielded to the will of a sovereign God, we will slowly, virtually invariably, try to unseat God as chief executive officer of our lives. Not knowing the certainty of tomorrow leads James to reiterate a core tenet of true biblical wisdom. A core tenet that Moses drove home when he wrote Psalm 90 that we read this morning. Namely, understanding the brevity of our human life. A core tenet of biblical wisdom. Moses said that our lives are like grass. That is renewed in the morning. It's looking great, but then by the evening it's withering and fading away. We stand no chance as mere finite creatures before an infinite God. This conviction does not lead Moses to then say, well, we're all going to die, so let's just eat, drink, and be merry. No, quite the opposite. It's not a, a, you only live once, so let's just have the most fun we can. No, it is that very belief that draws him to say, so teach us, O God. To number our days, teach us to number our days so that we might get that heart of wisdom that we so desperately need. You see, it is a mark of wisdom and wise living when we understand the brevity of our earthly lives. Life is short. So let's not waste it making self reliant, presumptuous plans that leave the Almighty out of the equation altogether. Life's too short for that. The rebuke comes at the end of verse 14 as we finish this out. Similarly, James continues this point What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A mist. I thought about bringing a spray bottle up here. I actually did. Spraying a little mist. And then Rachel talked sense into me and said, that would be tacky. Don't do that. <laughs> and she was right. But we can all imagine a mist, right? It's as clear in our minds today as it probably was in James's immediate Context, in the dry, arid climate of Palestine, mists would likely appear on the morning dew but then quickly dissipate. Seen for a moment and then gone. In our Minnesota climate, we see our breath in the air for quite a number of months during the year. Each of those vapor mists don't follow us around throughout the day. That would be really weird. They are seen for just a moment and then they're gone. We recently hung a picture in our dining room of a pine tree shoreline along a misty lake that reminds me of this exact concept. My life is like that mist over that lake. Here for a moment, it's going to be gone in no time. David writes in Psalm 144, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. A single breath, a passing shadow, a mist that appears for a moment then is gone. These metaphors should arrest our attention. This is you. This is me. We are finite. And while, yes, we are eternal souls who will live somewhere forever, our earthly lives should be stewarded as people who know our time is short because our every breath is given by an all-sustaining sovereign savior who as hebrews tells us upholds the universe with just the word of his power are you living friend as if life is a vapor doesn't matter how old you are young people children it is not a bad idea to think about My life is short, and I don't want to waste it. The founder and CEO, former CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs, he delivered a famous commencement speech at Stanford University in 2005 that is well-remembered because he broached the topic of death, largely taboo in our day. Job said this in this commencement address, he said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool that I've ever encountered to make the big choices in life. He says, nobody wants to die, even those that believe they're going to heaven don't want to die to get there, and yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it, and this is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. And right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Your time is limited, Job says, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Mostly, mostly fine so far. The prospect of death is motivating, and remembering. That should spur us on to make the biggest choices of life. And yet, here's his grand conclusion. So, stay hungry, stay foolish. Perhaps you've seen that as a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Moses says just the opposite. Stay hungry, but get wisdom. In light of the same reality, don't be foolish, be wise. The very opposite. So how is it going, numbering your days? Whether you're eight years old or 80 years old, the relevance is no different. How are you spending the moments of your life? How will you spend the moments before you? By God's grace, we presume in 2024. Psalm 90 is all about, as we read, God's eternal dwell, God as our eternal dwelling place. We meditate and think about the shortness of our life because God is our only hope. His presence is our greatest joy. It is to springboard that. Numbering our days means anticipation of finally being free from sin and unhindered from beholding the glory of Christ. And the more you long for the presence of the Lord, the more skillful you become at numbering your days. We are not long, we do not long for death, but like the Apostle Paul declared, to die is actually gain. But in the here and now, to live is Christ. He says the same, essentially, in Romans 14, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So, whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. So, in all our making of plans, may God help us avoid that godless presumption that factors God out of the equation and just relegates Him to that Sunday morning box that we end up leaving alone for the rest of the week. Well, we've heard James warning to the self-reliant individuals who have their lives completely figured out and have declared it to be so, and reminders of the brevity of life serve as a ready checkpoint against that runaway train that is our earthbound excitement for all that this world can give us. However, as Steve Jobs exemplified, who was a spiritual man but no, no friend of biblical Christianity One can possess an awareness of the shortness of life and still not live lives yielded before the God of the universe. Something more is necessary. So let's now consider verses 15 through 17, which provide that description of a a Godward disposition, a divine reliance, alongside a sober warning against boastful arrogance. In verse 15, James gives this corrective to the problem that he described in verse 13. So instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do, we will live and do this or that. So the verse gives more insight into James' main concern. Truly, when he, he, he's describing the, the foolishness of boasting about tomorrow's gains. Good planning is not the problem. Making a profit is not the problem. Forgetting God and plowing forward in self-reliance is the problem. But what does James mean when he says that we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that? What does he mean by that? Well, consider first maybe what it doesn't mean. Certainly, we cannot make the phrase here into a, a mindless ritual. Let's not conclude that we have sinned if we do not end literally every single sentence that we speak with, Lord willing. Now, I don't don't think that's James' point here, although it most certainly is a great thing to say regularly and routinely, right? A quick survey of Jesus, Paul, the other apostles' own ministry will show times where they make plans, but Lord willing is not verbalized. But yet, in retrospect, we learn that they attribute to God's will what was permanently and and fixed upon their hearts and minds. Jesus said in in John 4 that his food was to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is the spirit James has in mind. Like Christ, a submitted heart offered to God, not once at salvation and then we move on to do our own thing. But daily, routinely, our entire selves yielded to carry out the will of God. So what does that look like? Perhaps in prayers that sound something as routine as this. Lord, I really, really would like that lead role in my school play. But if I'm not chosen, would you please help me to trust you? and to still rejoice no matter what part I'm given. As practical as that. Lord, I'd really like to be accepted into this special business program so I can advance my career and better provide for my wife and family. But if it would lead me to loving material possessions more than you, please, don't lead me there. I don't want it. Provide for us in a different way. Or, Father, it's exciting to think about being part of a new church plant, but I only want to join if it is your will for my life. Help me to truly listen to wise counsel and wisely discern what would most glorify your name and serve your church most effectively. Or perhaps to the grieving heart, Lord, my world feels like it is caving in all around me. Disappointment, loss, and loneliness stares me in the face every direction I turn. I want a new start. I'm ready for a drastic change. But Lord, that's just what I want. And I'm not sure if it's what you want. Your will is more important than all this pain that I seem to look at every day. Would you steady my anxious heart in your word? I yield to whatever you have for my life. It's those kinds of prayers, those kinds of prayers that exhibit true, genuine religion, James' primary concern. These are the kinds of prayers offered by saints who long to live humbly, Another emphasis of James, humbly before a sovereign God so that grace might flow. Now, we might cynically think, well, just how serious is a little overconfidence now and then? Right? Isn't it a good thing to be a go-getter, running toward opportunities, and willing to go to any lengths necessary to achieve the life we want for ourselves? I thought that was a good thing. Well, disciplined, hard work is one thing. But with success comes the growing temptation to forget God. Let us never forget that. James puts things into perspective in verses 17 or 16 and 17, translating what presumption actually is for us in clear speech from God's point of view. So we see this warning against pride Verse 16 reads, as it is, harking back to the description that was just made, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil, evil, presumptuous self-reliance that declares intentions with no regard for the pleasure of God in the matter. This is tantamount to evil, boastful arrogance in God's estimation. Creaturely beings like us are masterfully designed by a sovereign, all-knowing God to live dependent lives. We were never designed to be lords unto ourselves, to live independent from the moment-by-moment dependency on the Lord. We were created to live consciously, worshipfully, joyfully, and gloriously submitted to the one true and living God. So I wonder, how do you respond when your perfect plans are dashed? How does it go? Some of us just naturally roll with the punches better than others. Not, not a big deal, we just, as one person said, if plan A doesn't work, there's 25 other letters in the, in the alphabet, right? We move on to the next. Others, we like it so much. We build up every single detail that if it doesn't get realized, we just want to fall apart or blame anyone that contributed to the downfall of our glorious plan. So common. how our heart reacts in these moments reveals the degree to which we are self-reliant or God-reliant. Who is really in charge of your life? One of the clearest examples in our day of a philosophy that embodies the the evil boasting that James condemns was made popular in a 2006 best-selling book, The Secret. Are you familiar with that? sold 30 million copies, and is promoted still today by Oprah Winfrey, Deepak Chopra, and many, many other celebrities and thought leaders. The book teaches the so-called laws of attraction that purportedly govern the world. As best I can tell, it's pretty similar to the Force in Star Wars. (laughs) Learning to harness these laws of attraction through the way a person thinks the way they think is critical to then manifesting your dreams into reality. One author says, manifesting is more than willpower or positive thinking. It is making everything you want to feel and experience a reality through your thoughts, actions, beliefs, and emotions. I think I'm safe to use the former Green Bay Packer quarterback Aaron Rodgers as a negative example for a moment, especially on a day such as today. (laughs) But Rodgers is a huge proponent of this philosophy. In a recent interview with tennis legend John McEnroe before this NFL season began, McEnroe asked Rodgers, who now plays for the New York Jets and who were at the time serious Super Bowl contenders. McEnroe asks Rogers if he worries his legacy will be tainted if things don't work out as gloriously as he was just describing. He was utterly confident they were going to win the Super Bowl. Rather awkwardly, Rogers confronts McEnroe for such negative thinking. Rogers then says he believes in the power of manifestation and speaking things into existence. And if enough positivity and belief surround their ball club, they will definitely win the Super Bowl. Many of you know where we're going with this. It cannot be coincidence that in the very first play of Rogers' very first game of this season, he suffers a torn Achilles tendon and is sidelined for the rest of the year. I'm not happy about that. I feel bad for the guy. But wow, the irony was front and center. There is one God who rules over all, and no man or woman possesses godlike speech to manifest their destiny into reality. Such thinking, according to James, is evil, it is boastful, it is arrogant in the sight of God. Now, we may not be quite as egregious in our self-confidence as our friend Aaron Rogers, but what does our prayerlessness reveal? What does it reveal about our hearts? Does it not reveal we think we can handle life on our own? Does it not reveal how little we think of our need for the Lord's will to be carried forth in our lives? Does it not reveal how highly we think of our abilities to execute plans and to write our own stories? Friends, as we enter a new year, let's open our eyes. Let's see afresh how much we fall short in this area. And let us receive God's grace as we humbly submit to his plans for us individually and as a church. Or perhaps you know yourself to be here this morning, but outside of the kind of true, genuine religion, the saving faith that James describes. Friend, what hopelessness there is when trying to command a world that won't obey you. Really. What hopelessness there is when, at the end of the day, you must save yourself from life's deepest tragedies. It simply can't be done. Deep down, I I suspect you know better than you think you know that we can't speak our dreams into existence, no matter how much we try. You were made, sovereignly designed for fellowship with your Creator. And you won't find rest until you find your rest in Him. In God's own Son, who lived to die and rise again so sinners might be forgiven and their lives made new. We pray you would see the bankruptcy of self-reliance and the beauty of divine dependency. Finally, verse 17 reads, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, To him it is sin. So knowing the truth means we are now accountable to it. To not know is one thing, but to know and to not obey ups the ante. It escalates the matter. Sin is not merely transgressing God's laws, sins of commission, but our sin is also expressed in failing to fulfill what we ought to do through sins of omission. So in verse 17, James now urges Christians to remember the will of God when they make their plans. To remember, because confessing our dependence on God's will in all things is the right thing that verse 17 describes, that we must do. And to fail to do it is sin against God. Well, as our church approaches 2023, there is so much that excites us, right? There is so much that we're looking forward to together. The prospect of beginning our efforts toward building the East Wing, the furthering of our church planting desires, a ministry trip to Portland, Oregon, Lord willing, in June, greater collaboration with like-minded churches across the country for mission and evangelism, support for new missionaries, and on and on and on. By God's grace, unless the Lord returns, we are hopeful that we will have much to praise God for when we stand at this exact point next year. But as our church ages and the decades roll by since our humble beginnings, let us be watchful Against complacency, self sufficiency, and autopiloting our way through this next year. Because I suspect knocking louder and louder at the front door of our hearts will be this sense that we can do quite a lot before we have to be utterly dependent on the Lord. And that is evil. And we must be watchful. Take a look at the screen here. What do these two things show us? (laughs) You're probably familiar with these, Paul more than any of us. But this is our church calendar. That's our church budget. They visually depict what we intend to do with our time and with our money. The two, the two most treasured things, probably, that the, the world lives for. This is our plan. There's other things, too, but generally speaking, this, this gives us a sketch of where we're going. So, what will keep us, brothers and sisters, from walking the path of self-reliance as we move, Lord willing, through that calendar, and as we Dispense resources to do, to carry out the plans that we hope to carry out. What will keep us from living for ourselves? Generally speaking, we need to be a people who have a clear understanding of who we are before a holy God. We need God's Word to refresh and renew our view of ourselves And our view of God, and I'm just going to turn this off so I know he's doing math at the moment, (laughs) but let me offer just a couple more very practical suggestions that I believe will greatly aid us in avoiding that path of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. On January 16th and 17th, our church family plans to gather to express Our concentrated dependency in every gathering, event, ministry, activity, outreach, missionary, church member, and on and on and on. Everything we can think of, we want to bathe in prayer at our all-night prayer vigil, January 16 and 17. Quite honestly, we're fools if we don't do this. We are. In fact, it is boastful arrogance if we plow forward into a new year in our own strength. Not everyone can come, we understand that, but many should. Our corporate prayer reveals our corporate dependence on the Lord, and we need to seek His face as a church family. So join us for an hour, or two, or six, or nine, (laughs) whatever the Lord might allow as we submit our plans before the God of the universe. Secondly, once a year prayer gatherings are wonderful, but consider implementing the same thing on a weekly basis in a much smaller timeframe on Wednesday nights at our growth groups. Hearing God's Word explained, then applying it in groups with fellow Christians, then seeking the Lord's face in prayer. This is a simple, routine act of dependence on the Lord that is also a countermeasure against the slippery, slow fade into self-sufficiency. Perhaps this is and has been your routine for a long time. Press on. Perhaps your schedule just can't allow it. God knows. We understand. Yet perhaps you know there's really not a great reason why you couldn't work a little harder to prioritize adding your voice to the prayers of the saints and to, in concert together, rely upon the Lord more faithfully with your brothers and sisters. Lastly, uh, another just practical point, nothing drives a stake through the heart of self-sufficiency better than when we are mimicking the generosity of God through our giving, through sacrificial giving. Such joy is ours when we show a watching world we don't worship the almighty dollar. And we aren't paying God off so he'll bless us with health, wealth, and comfort. That is not what's going on. We are giving back to him joyfully a portion of what he already owns. So he might multiply it beyond our wildest dreams. And the joy is all ours as we watch him do exceedingly beyond what we ask or think. God is working this grace in us. We see it. He is, even now, and has been faithfully. But may He continue to do so as an act of divine dependence on God alone. So as we steer our hearts now toward receiving the Lord's Supper, we remember that this meal is Christ's gift to His church. We remember that in Him we live and move and have our being. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. He is the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, to whom be glory now and forevermore. At the cross, we remember Jesus alone is our only hope in this life and in the life to come. He is supreme. And we are His loyal subjects. He rules and reigns, not us. But we get the joy of serving Him with gladness of heart. He is the Alpha and the Omega, while our lives are but a mist, a vapor. So may God help us hear this counsel from the book of James and to forsake the evil of self-sufficiency by depending on the all-sufficiency of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, this is our cry. This is our prayer. This is one of those chronic battles. It's not a one-and-done thing where we slay a dragon and never, never think about it, never experience the allure of self-sufficiency. This is a chronic battle killing of sin. And we want to be ever vigilant to weed it out and to know you are the Lord and we desire your will above all else. You are the Lord and we want your pleasure in all we do. We want Christ and Christ crucified We want the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. We want to be shaped more and more as a people of the Word. And we want to, as much as our feeble hearts can do, to cry out to you independence. And would you take our meager plans and do extraordinary things through them? Not so that we get an impressive story or feel as if we have cracked the code on what it means to be a healthy church, or any of that. May the glory be to you and you alone, from the smallest endeavor to the most significant. Help us now as we remember the very centerpiece, the focal point of our faith, that the God-man died for us and was raised so that we too might be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. Give us joy as we share this meal in remembrance of our Savior together. In whose name we pray. Amen.